1: I'm Carl Quintanilla. You're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Wednesday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Deirdre Bosa and John Fort. Today, Apple's potential demand, what that company is reportedly telling suppliers, although there's some pushback on the street today, plus what the Bank of England's doing to calm this market. More tech companies slamming the brakes on hiring. This time it's Lyft and DocuSign. And finally, an upgrade for Netflix, Uh, plus an in-depth look at the state of cord cutting and what that means for how you play the streamers. But we're going to begin with some comments made by Stanley Druckenmiller last hour at Delivering Alpha. Take a listen to this.
0: Our central case is a hard landing by the end of 23, but I don't know the... I've been wrong on a lot of things. I could be wrong on this, but since I do it for a living, that's our forecast, which is a recession in 23.
1: Joining us this morning here at the NYSC, Plexo Capital founding managing partner, CNBC contributor Lo Tony is with us. It's great to have you, Lo. Thanks, for as having me. as we have delivering alpha today, talking a lot of macro. And Drucker Miller's been negative for a long time, but that's right. sticking with his guns in terms of a hard landing in 23 and really chastising both the Fed for their mistakes and the BOE for what he believes is a mistake now.
0: Yeah, you know, I think when we look back, what we saw was that the inability for the Fed and Chairman Powell to really acknowledge the fact that inflation was a concern and many had been beating that horn. I think it was further fueled and exacerbated by a lot of the macro events that we've seen, supply chain issues. Now, now that Chairman Powell has addressed it, he is going all out Volcker. (laughs) So we know that one of the things that Volcker had to do was to beat inflation back, because what he was handed when he took over, um, everyone thought that the job had been done, but it hadn't, and it reared its head again. And he made sure, Volker made sure, and we're seeing Powell do the same thing. And so I think all of the folks that thought there was going to be a pivot, there's not gonna be a pivot. The Fed is gonna to continue to raise rates, and they're gonna make sure that they're going to tame inflation, even at the cost of jobs and what it will do to the economy.
1: So you don't think we could get some negative month-on-month CPIs. We can have home prices uh, go negative on Case-Shiller. We could have job losses. Or job losses start to move in, in at scale. And, the, and you think the Fed will be resolute?
0: I think they will.
1: Really? Uh, that has big implications for certainly how you trade names in the tech and
0: tech space. Absolutely. Yeah. It's going to be. I think it's going to be continue to punish them in terms of the multiples because we know what rising interest rates do to the multiples. We've already seen that. But I think we've seen that in Q1 and Q2, the numbers had been very resilient. And in many cases, some firms had actually increased their expectations. I think we're going to see folks start to pull back. I think we're going to start to see rising rates now start to actually hurt earnings as we go into this next earnings season.
1: Well, that, that line right there takes us straight to Apple this morning, D.
2: Yeah, that, and that's kind of the exact question everyone's trying to figure out. Have earning estimates come down enough? Lo, if you think and agree with Druckenmiller that the base case is this hard landing, what does that do to earnings, which, you know, are still up year on year, at least in terms of those estimates?
0: Yeah, they are. And, I, you know, I do think that the soft landing was always going to be challenging. You know, I, I would ask anyone to point us to a framework or a model as a reference in history to show us when we've successfully had a soft landing. And I think it's very hard to do, especially today in this environment when we have so many pieces that are moving and so many signals that are contrary in what they typically would mean, like the inverted yield curve in contrast with what we see with the strong job market. And so I don't really think there is a framework that one can look at. And so I I Mm -hmm. actually do agree. I think a soft landing is gonna be very difficult. I don't think there's a neutral landing. I think it's either a soft landing or a hard landing.
2: Right. Well, markets certainly turned around this morning on news from the BOE, but Apple is still down nearly three and a half percent. It has been weighing on the broader market all morning. Let's get to Steve Kovac. This is after Bloomberg report said the company told suppliers to slow efforts to increase the assembly of the iPhone 14 by about six million units. Um, Steve, (laughs) break it down for us, because, yes, this is kind of a trimming of a more production, keeps it in line. But the story here is Apple is very, very good, very efficient at figuring out what, how many units to make, And if it's out of line, that could mean a lot more pain in other parts of the company, other parts of uh, corporate America.
3: Yeah, exactly, Dee. So there's a lot of nuance to this Bloomberg report. So let's run down what it's saying. It's saying Apple's dropping plans to increase iPhone 14 production. That's on top of those original expectations it had before the launch. So it's sounding like Apple saw signs demand would be better than originally expected. But extra demand faltered during those first couple weeks after the 14 line launched. But this report also backs up what we've heard over the last few weeks, that those iPhone Pro models are selling a lot better than expected, which will help boost iPhone revenue. Remember, those started at a thousand bucks apiece. Also, the iPhone 14 Plus goes on sale next week. So we won't get a full picture of what iPhone 14 lo- demand looks like for another couple weeks after that. Meanwhile, Morgan Stanley analysts this morning trying to ease investor fears, calling this report, quote, more bark than bite and noting that Apple's original expectations are holding firm. They're expecting unit sales of iPhones to be about flat year over year. And Citi analysts saying this morning that the strength in the pro line can help offset any weakening demand for the regular iPhone 14. They also say a whopping 76 percent of new iPhone 14 sold so far are from the pro line. Still, something has changed in the last couple of weeks that made Apple think there won't be a bonus surge on on demand. And Jeffrey's analysts saying this week, iPhone sales are down about 11% in China in the first three days of sales. Apple declined to comment on Bloomberg's report, but we're seeing how the market's reacting, guys.
4: Yeah, Steve, um, it's easy to misconstrue these Apple reports, as we know from watching them over the years. And it seems to me like if Apple is indeed tracking for flat units year over year, that would be a huge victory. I think what we saw at the beginning with the launch was this strong skew in preference toward the pro and pro max uh, in terms of demand. And what Apple has done is in essence uh, boost the, the price in some markets overseas and also skew the line so that y- you're going to be paying more if you're buying an iPhone overall and their margins are probably going to be better. So I-, I don't know what people were expecting if, you know, they thought that Apple was going to do a lot more units, but that that certainly would be unusual in a year like this and not what it seems like Apple was uh, depending on.
3: Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's kind of why we're seeing, John, the the street push back on this Bloomberg report a little bit, saying, hey, it's nothing to really worry about. And to your point, yes, those if those iPhone Pros are in fact selling as well as we're getting the early data on, then that boosts the average selling price for every iPhone sold and that increases the iPhone revenue. Remember, I, Apple no longer reports iPhone unit sales. They go by total iPhone revenue, and that's what investors are going to be looking for. So even if unit sales are flat, then that's that could be okay because it's going to be offset by those more expensive phones. And keep in mind, next week, the more expensive iPhone 14 Plus, which starts at $8.99, is going to go on sale too. And a lot of people are looking to that to see, to test uh, further how the complete line of iPhone 14 demand is.
4: Absolutely, and Lo, I want to bring you back in here on Apple. Apple's been sort of the Aaron Judge of this uh, tech economy, right? Like they've, they've pulled away from others, both in terms of stock performance, maybe even to an extreme degree, and also their ability to differentiate enough to continue to command a premium. People aren't trading down in iPhones, they actually seem to be trading up, even if that affects units. How important is Apple then as a gauge of how good it can get in tech
0: right i think this is one company that we can always look to to give us an understanding of the consumer demand especially for these types of goods and in particular i do want to point out that mix shift because that's very accurate when we think about this bonus demand what apple's really saying is that hey our base case was correct we're not seeing the bonus demand i suspect that part of one of the strategies that Apple had in place was to try and pull over some users from the Android base. And you know, I think given this mix shift, seeing demand actually hold steady on the more premium phones, I mean, that's spot on in terms of the analysis. Those are better margins anyway. And what we have seen is that the higher end consumer is showing the resiliency. So, we should expect that the lower end consumer is not going to see that resiliency. And I think that is where Apple thought some of that bonus demand was going to come from, pulling over some of those Android users to these lower priced phones. It's okay to sell more phones that are more expensive.
1: Although, does that mean we need to think about the size of the ecosystem, the, the iOS ecosystem, differently now? If there's going to be left, less transitory, or I'm sorry, less transfer over from Android over time?
0: Yeah, I I do. I do think that one of the strategies that Apple had tried with these lower-priced phones was to try and pull over folks to increase the ecosystem, right? Once you have that base of users in the ecosystem on the hardware, then there's the opportunity to sell all of the additional services, which also have higher margins as well. Right.
2: Um, I wonder, though, if we're all looking at this Bloomberg report low when we should be looking at China. I mean, that Jeffrey's estimate that China, new iPhone sales in China were down 11 percent. You're not seeing as much scalper activity. It seems to me like that would be far more important in terms of that demand picture. I mean, this is the biggest smartphone market in the world. It accounts for about a fifth of Apple revenue.
0: That's right. And that is one market to continue to look at because, you know, kind of we're getting to the point where as China goes on the consumer demand side, especially for electronics, so does the rest of the world. And when you look at the usage in China of smartphones in general and that preference towards the more higher-end iPhone models, that without a doubt is something to watch for. An 11% drop, that's, that's pretty significant.
4: Uh, 11% is significant low, but when that's a, if that's a unit drop, Uh, We also got to consider the revenue and profit mix that we were just talking about, right, and where um, the growth would be coming from for Apple. China's been troubled for a while with COVID lockdowns and whatnot, and I guess part of the question also is, does North America make up for it?
0: Right, and and I think this kind of goes back to, to Carl's point about the ecosystem as a whole. You know, I think what Apple has been trying to do is to lock people in on the hardware side and then have the ability to sell them services. So yes, in the near term, that's correct. If we see the 11% drop, but we're gonna pick that up by selling higher end units, that increases margins and that will have a near-term benefit. However, I think long-term, the plan for Apple has always been to get as many people into the ecosystem as possible, lock them into the hardware so that they can vertically integrate and have all those additional services layered in on top that have even higher margins.
1: Uh, It's going to be a bit of a wait to see how they respond to the reporting on the call, because uh, they're unlikely to say anything between <laughs> now and then, but it's certainly uh, raising a lot of eyebrows. Lo, thanks so much, always good to see you. Thanks uh, for having me. Tony. Apple, not the only mega cap that has pulled back lately. Dominic Chu has a look
5: at some other consumer-facing names that have come down, at least in terms of valuation, Dom. All right, so Carl, over the last couple of days, we've highlighted the technology sector, and the communications services sector is two places where we were trying to find some relative values, at least on a price to forward earnings basis. So every price, every dollar in stock price today for the anticipated earnings over the next 12 months. Now, today we're looking at consumer discretionary because it is one of those mega cap sectors that houses Amazon and Tesla, amongst some of these other names. And we put that next to the Invesco QQQ Trust and the S&P 500. It's a little bit better than the NASDAQ 100, but still in terms of just worse versus the S&P 500 on a year to day basis. Now, within that consumer discretionary sector, from a forward price-to-earnings basis, valuations, no doubt, have come down quite a bit during that span. If you look at the forward P.E. of the overall sector at least for consumer discretionary. There's no doubt it's driven a lot by two stocks in particular. We'll get to that in just a bit. But at about 25 times forward earnings, we've seen a tail off quite a bit from the highs that we saw post-pandemic. So with that in mind, at a 25 times forward PE basis, how many stocks in that sector are actually below or trading at a discount to that industry multiple, so to speak? Well, it is the vast majority of them, believe it or not. And it's highlighted by names like Nike, which trades at about 25 times forward earnings. Home Depot is roughly 15 to 16 times. Expedia Group, 10 times. General Motors on the discount side of things, five times forward earnings, and about three and a half to four times forward earnings for a housing company like Pulte Group. So there are some stocks in here that are trading at discounts, but of course, Deirdre, the two stocks that matter the most to the consumer discretionary sector are no doubt Amazon, and Tesla. And let me just put that up there, because with Amazon, we're talking about a company that trades at roughly, call it 62 times forward earnings versus around 52 times forward earnings for Tesla. So these two stocks are important because they make up 45% of the index weight. So as go these stocks. So goes the rest. It's hard to look at the industry multiples without looking at those two. And as we have the last couple of days, Deirdre, I will post the other stocks with discount multiples on a forward basis on my Twitter feed at the Domino. So you can kind of see where these stocks fall into that general range.
2: We will look for it. And that puts it in perspective. Those previous names, another tech, that was interesting. Uh, Dom, thanks so much. We'll talk to you soon. After the break, Lyft slams the brakes on hiring, plus a deep dive on Alphabet. Tech Check is just getting started.
1: Welcome back, more tech companies pausing hiring. Let's get a gut check. Gut check on Lyft and DocuSign today. Lyft freezing U.S. hiring for the rest of the year amid macro uncertainty. That comes after laying off about 60 employees in July. Lyft said its costs jumped 36% in the most recent quarter and shares down 66% year-to-date. DocuSign reducing their workforce by 9% as part of a new restructuring plan. The company's trying to help its growth and profitability objectives, and the move comes after the company named former Google executive Alan Tigerson as the new CEO. Just last week, D. we're going to monitor uh, these incremental moves, especially in tech, regarding reduction in workforces.
2: Yeah, keyword incremental, right? You have to wonder if a Lyft hiring freeze is the kind of pain that Powell had in mind versus the layoffs, for example, from a DocuSign. Um, but for Lyft, which has been facing, you know, these higher costs and has really just been slammed, you're looking at a chart now down 66% year to date. If that's going to help out even with their profitability, um, stock-based comp, John makes up 18% of Lyft's first quarter sales, so that is a huge portion. Um, cutting or at least freezing hires may help with that.
4: Yeah, when it comes to DocuSign, you, with a company like this, I think you wanna check and see if they get it right the first time. I mean, it's, it's rough on workers, certainly, when you end up having to do a cut, but you really only want to do one cut, ideally. Yeah. You, you want to cut once, build from there, hire the people who need to be hired, and then have an upward trajectory. You don't want this malaise where you cut and then you cut again, or you are not. Yeah. You can't get people in the door. So, um, you know, investors tend to like cuts, right, because they flow to the bottom line, but really um, what, you're, what you're in it for is growth, and you want to see if they have to cut again. So the, the, the watch is on.
2: That's a good point. I remember at the beginning of the pandemic, John, uh, you would see some companies cut once and then cut again. That's really hard for workforce morale. Anyways, let's turn to Alphabet now. Our next guest likes what he sees out of Google Cloud, raising estimates, saying the platform's about five years behind AWS from a revenue perspective. Joining us now, Cowan Managing Director John Blackledge. Uh, John, behind from a revenue perspective, but also very behind from a profitability perspective. Perspective: Google Cloud is the distant number three in terms of the hyperscalers that is still losing money. What turns it around, especially when Azure and AWS are growing at pretty similar rates from a much larger base?
8: Yeah, um, great question. Um, thanks for having me on. One of the things that we did with this work was we actually introduced a, a Google Cloud model. Remember, Alphabet you know, provides um, revenue and op-income for Google Cloud, but they do not break out GCP and workspace and so we were able to do that and we found a couple interesting things uh number one we think gcp is about 75 percent of total google cloud revenue um and then we and then we're also able to compare gcp with to your point with um aws actually uh going back and going forward and the three interesting things we found which you you said yeah so we think gcp is about five years behind Uh, AWS uh, from a revenue scale perspective. So um, the revenue this year for GCP looks like AWS revenue in 2017. Secondly, um, and I think importantly, and and I'll tie in the operating income in a second, but um, the GCP from 2019 to this year, um, their revenue is tracking online, is tracking pretty well with AWS from 2014 to 2017. So the question is going to be, you know, can it, the next four or five years, can it track with AWS? And if it does, um, our numbers are going to be low, even though we raised today. And then, you uh, a great point. Um, Google Cloud uh, has a negative operating income. Um, GCP. We found um, there's a huge gap between uh, GCP and AWS at same revenue scale, um, and the gap is seemingly widened in the last couple of years. Even though, um, per our estimates, GCP uh, revenue has quadrupled since 2019. Um, the op income gap versus AWS at a similar revenue scale. Um, widened, and I, I think there's a couple reasons. I mean, they're, they are, like you said, they're number three. They're they're the competitor. Um, maybe the way they're architecting their data centers relative to Amazon and AWS. Um, but I think I think being um, uh, number three player uh, has an impact on profitability. All that said, but there's the opportunity, right, for the Alphabet shareholder. Um, there have been rumblings that um, Alphabet is, is, and within Google Cloud is is going to focus on profitability. Uh, And so so there is an opportunity.
4: Yeah. To what extent should we be looking at this from more of a gross margin perspective, large customer perspective and the benefit across Google? To what extent does it make sense to look at that versus um, revenue to revenue based on what Amazon was building five years ago? Is the structure and value in the cloud changing such that investors need to think about that differently?
8: Yeah, it's a good question, John. I, I I feel like when we modeled it out, uh, we think AWS, and they, again, they don't break out like they don't go to the gross margin li- level. But we think GCP's mid sixties gross margin, and we think a lot of the um, the losses come from the from the other outbacks. Whether that's remember when when uh, Thomas Curran came. On board, I believe it was in 2019 um, at G, at Google Cloud. Um, they they've done a lot of hiring, so I think I think there's a, a lot of headcount and a lot of a lot of um, costs within uh, below the gross margin gross mm-hmm. profit line um, that are leading yeah. to the losses.
2: CFO Ruth Porat always says that you know Google Cloud will continue to get a lot of investment from the overall company. John, thanks for your insights on the study. John Blackledge Cowan. Thank you.
4: And from the cloud to the edge, ahead of Amazon's big product announcements that kick off today at noon Eastern, that's in devices and services in time for the holidays, I got a chance to talk to Dave Limp, who's Amazon's SVP of devices and services. I asked him how Amazon's thinking about product development for the consumer in a time where inflationary pressures are affecting everything.
9: It's sort of the essence of how we're inventing around this idea of ambient intelligence. you know it the idea that technology affordable technology, by the way, which I think ours has always been, you know, an echo dot is you know fifty dollars and so but but the idea that you can put affordable technology into a home and it can be incredibly useful uh, when you need it, but fade into the background when you don't. That is kind of the essence of what we're what we're trying to do, and i I would say that in environments, all environments, but especially ones that are challenging in many ways, coming out of a pandemic, maybe the economy, um, you know, I would argue that maybe picking your head up out of the phone a little bit more, maybe spending a little bit less time in the metaverse is just good for all of us, and spend a little more time with your family. Going
4: to have more on the specific announcements, which are coming uh, this afternoon. I also talked to uh, Dave Limp about logistics, supply chain challenges with Q4 just days away. You can catch the full conversation after the news breaks. Uh, it's going to be on the show Twitter and LinkedIn page later this afternoon, right around two o'clock-ish, probably, uh, once the news is out and you can talk about the details of everything they're announcing today, guys.
2: Yeah, Call. we'll be watching that event, John. Um, what he said at the end there really caught my attention. He said, sometimes you need your pick, pick your head up out of the phone for a while. Speaks to Amazon not having its own sort of mobile operating system. And Alexa does fade into the background of your house. But I think the key question... Um, for this unit, this business for years has been, will we ever get an Alexa in the wild, right? And they've moved into the car, car, Carl, um, but you still don't have an Alexa at your fingertips when you actually exit your home.
1: Uh, Pretty interesting. Uh, And certainly staying out of the metaverse would be music to John's ears. We know that. (laughs) We look forward to hearing (laughs) a lot more, uh, Diaz. We got session highs (laughs) here. Dow's up almost 400.
2: Yeah, and the 10-year yield at 3755, 5, so a little bit of easing there too. After the break and upgrade of Netflix, another one I should say, there's been a few lately, is now the time to buy with the stock down 60% this year. Tech Check returns in just a moment.
1: Welcome back to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with John Ford, Deirdre Bosa, and Julia Borston We're going to continue to keep our eye on the NASDAQ after that 10-year briefly top 4% overnight, settling back. Uh, NASDAQ doing some yeoman's work here, even with Apple as a drag. Plus, in just a moment, one firm saying, and now's the time to go long Netflix. Julia's got more on that call. First, though, European markets are closing an unbelievably volatile session after the Bank of England steps in to stabilize the bond market. Seema Modi's been watching that all morning. Hey, Seema.
7: Hey Carl, and the purchases will be carried out on whatever scale is necessary. That was what the Bank of England said earlier this morning. That did provide some temporary support to European markets. we off the lows of the session. J.P. Morgan telling clients, while today's move by the central bank may sound like QE, quantitative easing, the bank cautions it's not. It's a monetary policy tool to address the recent deterioration in the long end of the curve and concerns over margin calls. Speaking of the long end of the cur- curve, yields on the 30-year in the UK dropped a reversal from what we've seen over the past six days, where yields have gone from 38 to above 5.1%, currently yielding about 39 for the third year in the U.K. Currency traders at Stonex writing that while the U.K. bond market may calm down due to the actions taken by the BOE, let's not forget that this is possibly not the best news for the currency, the pound, which did initially trade higher, it's trading higher right now, 107 against the dollar, Remember, the record low uh, is 105. Banks based in London, Barclays, Lloyds Banking have been on the decline. Eurasia just putting out a note saying the government's plan is unlikely to convince markets uh, that the crisis will get worse before it gets better. One bright spot similar to what we're seeing here, the oil and energy and mining names. You'll see Shell, Glencore, BP all up about 1% to 2%. Carl, back to you.
1: Sima, thanks for that. Sima Modi. Our next guest does worry that a tightening Fed coupled with shaky earnings might mean that markets have further to fall. And investors agree with the put options hitting record highs. Of course, the volume last week on Friday, pretty unbelievable. Joining us this morning, Fidelity Investments head of Global Macro, Urien Timmer. Uh, Urien, talk to me about how you think um, the uh, Q3 season is going to shape up, especially given that people are pinning their hopes, at least on better seasonality.
10: Yeah, so, uh, by the way, greetings from Milan, where I'm on a roadshow here. Um, so <laughs> there's a couple of moving targets, right? There is the valuation side, and we, we know all – about that story. As rates rise, the present value of future cash flows goes down. And so the PE side of the market derates. And of course, that's well underway. We were 23 times expected earnings in January. We're down to about 16. My guess is we're heading to 15 or 14 based on where the Fed is telling us it's going. Uh, But that PE is only as good as the E, right? So this this is on a forward basis. And Earnings have held up so far, right? So second quarter, 75% of companies out, uh, beat estimates by about 400 basis points. Q3 earnings season is coming up in a couple of weeks. Expectations are for about 3 to 4% growth. And we'll see if companies hold up. But, you know... A 14 times a $235 per share earnings number is not the same as 14 times $220, which is the current trailing earnings number. And so with the economy slowing and earnings growth slowing, right? Remember, earnings growth was 50 percent last year. It's down to 10 percent on its way, probably to five or so. Uh, How strong that E stays is going to be a very important underpinning or lack of it uh, for the market going forward.
7: Right.
1: Are, are you going so far as to expect a flat or negative earnings growth?
10: Um, I so far earnings are holding, and you know when inflation is high as it is today. Generally speaking, during uh, derating cycles, earnings actually do hold up okay because even if it's a money illusion, you know, earnings are a nominal concept because companies sell into the nominal economy. But of course, investors see through that, so they will will be less willing to pay for those earnings. So um, I'm I'm not convinced that all that earnings growth will go negative. Uh, hmm. We do see though that energy is lifting earnings. Right, X Energy. The estimate for earnings growth for this year is only three percent instead of ten percent. So we do need to kind of look past uh, the the big movers that are uh, keeping um, earnings up. But I think earnings growth slowing um, is certainly in the works um, and it's well underway. And whether the 2023 numbers hold up, you know, which call for another six or seven percent growth from 2022, I think that's the bigger risk than whether 2022 ends up coming through. Because when you look at the yield curve being inverted, et cetera, and you look at how far the Fed is taking this, right, to about two and a half percent above the neutral rate, uh, the risk of a recession, while I'm not willing to commit to that outlook, um, I think that risk looms larger for 2023 than 2022.
2: Um, what about dollar strength, Yurian? that certainly affects the E as well. Companies have been dealing with it. We'll deal with it again. Um have estimates fully baked that in? And especially you talk about some of the big tech names that are vulnerable to dollar strength. How does that trickle down into the U.S. economy? Your forecast, is that assuming a softer recession or hard learning like Druckenmiller said this morning at Delivering Alpha?
10: Yeah, so the dollar certainly is a problem for a, a lot of people and a lot of central banks, right? We see we see the weakness in the Chinese yuan. Obviously, we see the weakness in the yen and the the BOJ intervening there. Uh, we see it in sterling. So I'm sure um, I'm sure the Fed chair is getting a number of calls from all over the world about the dollar strength. And and it and it reminds me actually of the 2015 to early 2016 cycle where. We had this policy divergence between the U.S. uh, lifting rates and the rest of the world easing at that point, uh, driven by the Chinese yuan, and we ended up with the so-called Shanghai Accord. I, I don't know if we'll get one this time around, but certainly... A strong dollar is a problem for uh, for for earnings. Uh, it, it is a headwind, especially for the big global companies. And you can make the distinction, for instance, between utilities, which are more domestic, and consumer staples, which are more global. And so, I don't know to what degree uh, the estimates reflect that. But I can tell you that the estimate for the third quarter, you know, the the, the, the bottom up aggregated estimate, really hasn't moved very much in a number of months. So my guess You're is. In? That the strong dollar is not really reflected in that.
4: You I, I wonder because I hear a lot of people saying, "Oh, well, is this going to be over in 23? Is it going to be over in 24?" This period that we're going through now in the markets—is this a weather pattern, you think, or is it climate change? Right? Is this—is this something that we go through for a year, or is it something that's going to be multiple years, like the the, the period that we just went through of of low rates and uh, and easy money? That that you know, that was more climate change than a weather pattern.
10: Yeah, I I think in many ways we're actually kind of back to the old normal, right? So we had the great moderation of the last several decades, low interest rates, low inflation, uh, a lot of mini cycles, right? So elongated expansions and very small corrections. Before that time, though, uh, we we were kind of always in a boom-bust mode, right? The economy would overheat. Inflation would become a problem. The Fed would respond to that by hiking rates. Then we'd have a recession. And that was sort of the boom-bust of the four-year cycle, a four- to five-year cycle. I wonder if we're going back to that now and whether the last couple of years, as unusual as they've been with COVID and the lockdown and the reopening, uh, war in Russia, et cetera. I wonder if the last couple of years is actually more representative of what the cycle has always looked like in the past until we got to that great moderation. So I think that is a risk that the cycles get truncated and more severe uh, as we go forward.
1: Uh, certainly, um, uh waning globalization, demographics, it would would lend itself to that argument, Yuri, and it's going to take years to know for sure. Uh, Safe travels. Look forward to seeing you again soon. Yuri and Timur. Great. Thank you. As we head to break, a quick programming
4: note. Do not miss Jim Chanos, live from Delivering Alpha, coming up at the top of the hour. Plus, Orlando Bravo joins CNBC at 2.15 Eastern. Don't want to miss those interviews. Stay with us. Atlantic Equities upgrading Netflix this morning. Julia Borston has more on that call. Julia.
6: Well, John, Netflix shares they're up about 6.5% this morning, though they are still down nearly 60% year-to-date. Atlantic Equities upgrading the stock ahead of its expected launch of an ad-supported service that's expected to come in early November, writing, quote, we have determined that this could be extremely material and do not believe The benefit is currently reflected in the consensus. We estimate advertising revenues could reach $8 billion in 2025, accounting for 15 to 20% of total revenues at that point. Now, Wolf Research also out with a bullish note today, reiterating its outperform rating on the stock, saying, quote, We anticipate that advertising video on demand will drive stronger long-term revenue and free cash flow growth. But in the near term, FX may be the biggest factor in earnings revisions. Going on to say that they are cautiously optimistic heading into the third quarter, despite significantly worse FX trends. Meanwhile, Moffat Nathanson out today with its quarterly cord cutting report, warning about a turn for the worse after the cable companies lost More than 1 million subscribers in the second quarter, topping 1 million for the first time ever. Moffat Nathanson writing, quote, problems abound. The virtual MVPD story, those are the digital bundles, is losing luster, saying the traditional distributor story is even worse. Total industry declines have accelerated and going on to note that seasonality is worsening and even the sports safety net is fraying. Now, Craig Moffat notes that only one in four cord cutters have adopted the new digital bundles in the last 12 months, more than were expected to move over. Moffat Nathanson does maintain an outperform rating on our parent company Comcast, as well as on Fox, market perform on Disney and Warner Brothers Discovery, and an underperform rating on Paramount. Now, the big question is as we head into third quarter earnings, how much consumers are going to be pulling back? Or shifting from ad free to lower cost ad supported streaming subscription services. And of course, we're watching for the details on that Netflix ad supported launch. Guys.
1: Uh, so much in there uh, streaming, the dollar, uh, cable, and the rest. Uh, Julia, thanks so much. Our Julia Borston. Coming up next, the Chinese tech stock outperforming the broader market this year. More on how you might want to play that name when we're back in two.
2: Got a gut check. It has been a brutal year for China tech and tech overall, of course. Take a look at names like Alibaba and JD.com. One clear outperformer, however, has been Pinduo Duo. Shares are up more than 5% year to date, which is saying something. And that comes despite China's COVID restrictions and the less desirable performance of their peers. Now, the company. Did have a good quarter last quarter, and that boosted shares, which are up nearly 2% today. It's been execution as well for this company because it's an e commerce company like Alibaba. Carl, now going to try that model over here in the U.S. Should be interesting.
1: Uh, It is going to be interesting. Meantime, coming up next, Bernstein's Tony Saganaki will weigh in on these reports about Apple uh, potentially scaling back on extra iPhone production. More to do with uh, what to do with that stock as it tries to bounce off of 145. Stay with us.
4: Let's get back into Apple. Our next guest says today's news still keeps targets in line with expectations on the iPhone but predicting the current cycle could end up weaker than expected. Let's bring in Bernstein senior research analyst Tony Sakanagi. Uh Tony, good to see you. Um, my outlook for this cycle was lower units, higher margins, and really the questions of a does Apple have the components to fulfill demand on the premium end? If so that'd be great and B, are they going to get the benefit of a good comp on attached for watches and AirPods, given that stores are open this year? Has, has the, the, the question really changed around those things?
9: Thank hey John. Uh, no, I think that frames it pretty well. You know, more broadly, I think the question is, you know, will a consumer that is increasingly pressured by high interest rates, and perhaps some difficult comparisons from a year and two years ago when they were home and spending on consumer electronics. Will Apple be able to uh, continue to engage and command dollars from this consumer? That's the real question. And it extends not just to iPhone, but also more broadly to Macs and iPads, which have had you know, a really good years during the pandemic and, and over the last year. And as well, the watch, which is arguably the most discretionary item that Apple sells. But it it all goes back to, you know, how healthy is the consumer? And ultimately, is Apple's positioning, product positioning, targeting a somewhat more affluent consumer, able to continue to persist healthily going forward?
4: But the risk, it seems to me, is that Apple's stock is still up, actually up more than 3 percent over the last 12 months Uh, which is pretty unusual. What what will it take for Apple to go more in line with what some other very strong companies like Microsoft have done performance-wise? And is that just in the cards, even if the season is okay?
9: I think Apple, you know, has commanded a view in investors' minds that it's a durable consumer franchise and that earnings will not be impacted as much as other companies. So, if we do see incremental weakness in iPhones or more broadly across its consumer offerings, I do think we'll see a pullback in the stock because right now investors have given Apple the benefit of the doubt and said, look, results have continued to be very strong. This is a great franchise. Consumers like their products. And we think that they can hold up through a more difficult economic period. If Apple is not able to deliver on that. And, and that's why you saw, you're seeing some uneasiness in the stock today. You know, we have a, a downward revision, albeit from just a week or two ago, in terms of production expectation. So if the fear is, uh-oh, this might be catching up with Apple, um, and therefore maybe you know, earnings and revenues are not as secure as we thought, sure, we're going to have the stock get back some uh, unquestionably.
1: Uh, tony i wonder how you're thinking about production costs Uh, there's some reporting this morning that uh, tsm had asked for a price increase and the giant said no Uh, we know about some of the migration to india is that going to be material long term
9: over time the migration to india is really a diversification play away from china and and, you know that's a multi-year process i think in terms of input costs what we found historically until very recently is typically iPhone margins have gone down over time, despite the fact that prices has gone up. And part of that is inflation. Part of that is that Apple is putting more technology into each iPhone. And so I I think the historical pattern could ultimately persist, uh, which is that um, iPhone margins, and more broadly, hardware margins, will go down. Now, I think the one thing that is certainly in Apple's favor Um, is that the pro continues to appear to have very strong take up and pro margins are generally higher than base iPhone margins, in part because pro buyers tend to buy more uh, storage and that storage is very, very Mm -hmm. profitable for Apple. So I see some offsets here, some potential input cost increases given Mm -hmm. inflation Uh, But I also see, uh, you know, a pro uh, mix to the pro, which should help offset that.
2: Right. Tony, did you answer your question then in terms of how healthy is that high end consumer if they are buying the pro? And I wonder, too, how much credence do we put into that Bloomberg report that talked about a softening of those expectations? We've had reports in the past um, that made investors a little jittery. Apple goes on to blow expectations out of the water. What's different this time? Certainly a very different macro backdrop.
9: I think investors have to be really careful about early data points around the cycle. And I I think the best testament to that is just four years ago uh, in 2018, when Apple itself provided guidance on November 1 for iPhone. And then on January 1, just two months later, had a significant negative pre-announcement. And so even later in the cycle, Apple itself, with all the information, information in the world and trends that they see in their products was not able to gauge iPhone demand properly. And so I, I you know I think both on the upside when people got excited about a pro mix shift and production maybe going up. And then today on the downside with oh well maybe production isn't going up, I think investors need to just bide their time a little bit. It's very early in the cycle. Now that being said, if if the Bloomberg report is correct. And that Apple is now starting to see perhaps a downward trajectory in their expectations. That does worry me because often uh, when, uh, when a product of any kind goes on a, on a certain trajectory and right. that trajectory is starting to deviate away from your forecast, that's generally not a good well, sign.
4: Yeah, we got to leave it there. Tony, thank you. Tony Sakanagi.
2: And if you missed part of the show, do not forget to follow and subscribe to our podcast. You can listen anytime, anywhere, wherever you download podcasts. Tech Jack is back in a moment.
4: One more thing before we go. CNBC is out with a list of names screened that investors are betting heavily against. They have short interest that's at least a quarter or more of the float. That's the number of shares available for uh, general investors to buy or sell. Two tech names in the top 10 are Asana and Michael Saylor's MicroStrategy. Both have just over a third of their float shorted as of mid-August. They're up double digits over the last three months. And Carl, that can mean some volatility. If they
1: move higher, they might end up moving a lot higher or it can mean the opposite. Wow, yeah, take a look at that micro-strategy uh, chart. Uh, meantime, guys, uh, close to session highs. Uh, Bulls are going to try to make another run here at 3,700. As D pointed out, 10-year comes back to 375. Busy day on the half with Chanos and delivering Alpha. Let's get to the judge. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m.
6: You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first...